Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Some people think when they, we talk about the mark of the beast, that is some strange tattoo of 666 on the forehead. People wonder if the mark of the beast is some sort of identification number issued by some mastermind who desires to take over the world. Others are concerned about barcodes on packages at the grocery store and they think that that can also lead to you receiving the mark of the beast. And also I think that the recent um, buzz is that these RFID chips, they say that they insert those chips into your hand and they say that's the mark of the beast, beware of it. And so there's a lot of speculation about the mark of the beast and what is the mark of the beast and do we see that happening today? But fortunately we do not have to be in confusion about this topic because we see that the book of Revelation talks about the number of the beast as well as the mark of the beast uh, which is going to be forced upon people and unless they receive that mark they cannot buy or sell. And so, is the mark of the beast a barcode label on a can at a grocery store? But before asking what the mark of the beast is, we need to have a clear understanding of a more basic question. Who is the beast that is enforcing this mark, or will enforce this mark, I should say? And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, that no scripture is, is of any private interpretation. Do you know what that means? It means that when you open your Bible, you cannot come up with your own interpretation and say, aha, that's what it is. Because the Bible itself, my friends, will speak for itself if you let it. And I think that that's the safest way to go, allowing the Bible to make it clear, not trying to impose what you think the Bible is saying. Because when you're imposing what you think the Bible is saying, guess what you're doing? You are giving your own private interpretation. And the Bible tells us the Bible, no scripture is of any private interpretation. The Bible will bring forth what is indeed clear. And so the mark of the beast isn't something that we need to guess about. The book of Revelation clearly unfolds who the beast is. It identifies the mark of the beast as well as how to avoid receiving it. And it answers our questions. Whoever this beast is, whatever the mark of the beast is, do you agree that we should carefully study the Bible to find out all the ways to identify it and accept only an identification that fits every one of the specific details that the Bible gives and not just a few sensational ones. Amen. 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 And so, the book of Revelation clearly reveals how to identify the beast. Now, this is the revelation of who, according to the book of Revelation? Jesus of Jesus Christ. 
Revelation is not a book that focuses on the mark of the beast. That is not the primary focus of Revelation. When we open the book of, the, of Revelation, we are studying a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see that Revelation does two things. It reveals Jesus' truth. And number two, it exposes Satan's deceptions. Revelation talks about a struggle, a battle, a universal conflict between good and evil. And in light of this final battle between Christ and Satan, there's a struggle between true and false worship. The beast has worshipers. Jesus has worshipers. The beast's worshipers are marked. And Jesus' worshipers are also sealed with God's sign. This final crisis centers around the beast's mark and God's seal. And if we look at the chapter that we're going to be focusing on tonight, Revelation chapter 13 is where we're going to be delving into predominantly in our session. We will be referring to other texts along the way, but you want to keep your finger on Revelation 13 as we go back and forth in the pages of God's Word. But Revelation 13, verse 1 and 2, page 1183, tells us about this beast that is going to enforce a mark. Revelation 13, verse 1 and 2. If you're there, say amen. 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 Page 1183. And let's have table number 1. Read that for us, please. Uh, verse 1 and 2. Aha, uh -huh. thank you very much, Scott. So here the Bible describes a dreadful beast. A beast which comes up out of where? The sea. It talks about this beast as a mighty power. And we need to understand Bible prophecy symbols and what they mean in order to interpret the prophecies. And so we're going to break this down piece by piece and see what the Bible reveals. So that leads us to question number one. Question number one, what do the waters from where this beast comes from represent? Okay, notice that this beast it emerges from the sea. So what do the waters that this beast emerges from represent? We go to Revelation 17, verse 15 to find the answer. That's page 1186. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, page 11. 86. And we're going to have table number two. Patricia, if you could read that for us, please. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Okay, so very clearly, is the Bible clear on what the waters represent? What do the waters represent? The waters represents peoples, 
multitudes, nations, and tongues. Are you following? So in other words, this beast emerges from the sea, from the many waters. So in other words, this beast comes up out of a very densely populated area. Yes or no? Does that make sense? Is the Bible saying that? Yes, right? So this beast emerges from a densely populated area. So we see that the waters represent people in Bible prophecy. So this beast comes up out of the sea. It comes up out of a very densely populated region of the earth. It comes up among the peopled areas. That is among the nations. And so when you go further on, the Bible tells us about this beast in Revelation 13 as being like four beasts. A very weird uh, amalgamation of all these beasts. It's a leopard-like beast with feet of a bear, mouth of a lion, and it has ten horns. And so what do these beasts represent in Bible prophecy? Well, the question number two says, what does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? And to get the answer, we let the Bible give us the answer. No private interpretation, remember? We let the Bible speak for itself. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? Page 865 in your table Bibles. Daniel 7, verse 23. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? Page 865, Daniel 7, verse 23. We're going to get the answer straight from the Word of God. That's the safest way to go. That's right. Yes. No, that's fine. Verse 23. Thank you. So we see that the fourth beast is what, according to this verse? Is a fourth kingdom. Right? So a beast represents what? A kingdom. Or we can even say a political power. Right? So a beast represents a kingdom. It represents a political power. You know, many people are misled. They think that the beast is an evil person. But the Bible describes it not as a person, but as a power. And they're thinking of a single person who must be a universal dictator or a mastermind with a desire to dominate the world and oppress Christians. But in actuality, the Bible tells us very clearly that the beast, these four beasts, are four kingdoms. The beast represents a political or religious power. And according to the Bible, it does not represent an individual person. These powers are political or religious powers. As the Bible describes this beast in Revelation chapter 13, it goes on to say in verse 2, which we read already earlier by Scott, the dragon gave him, this beast, his power, his throne, and great authority. So whoever the beast power is, he gets his authority or the seat of his government from who? The dragon. And so the dragon gives him his authority. The dragon gives him his power. So we see, remember in Daniel chapter 7, 
The Bible talks about a lion. It says that the lion is a king of beasts. And what did the lion represent? Which kingdom? Babylon. That's right. It talks about a bear with three ribs that comes up after the lion. And what kingdom did that represent? Medo-Persia. It talks about a leopard-like beast with four heads and four wings. And what was this beast represent? Which kingdom? Greece. That's right. It talks about a dragon-like beast, dreadful, terrible, ten horns. And what kingdom is this? Rome, pagan Rome. That's right. Now remember, in Bible prophecy, God uses animals to, to describe nations and governments. And it's not offensive when we call this power a beast. Okay, so don't get offended if uh, you're connected in any way to this power. Uh, and say, what did you call me? A beast? <laughs> you know, we do that today, even. Do you know that? What animal represents the United States of America? The eagle, right? The bald eagle. Uh, do you guys know what animal represents Russia? The bear, right? And what about, oh, maybe, let's see if you guys know this one. What animal represents South Korea, where I'm from? Does anyone know? <laughs> It's the Siberian tiger. Yes. <laughs> right? Uh, you know what the, the animal is that represents Canada? It's not a... <laughs> that's not an animal. <laughs> what animal represents Canada? Anyone know? It's a beaver. A beaver. <laughs> so, yeah. So, we, we, even today, we have these connections with nations and these animals representing these nations. Do we not? And so we see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, we see the dragon, that, that very same dragon that gives this beast its power, its seat, and great authority. What is this dragon doing in Revelation chapter 12, the chapter before it, page 1182? It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Who was that child that was about to be born? Born to rule all nations with a rod of iron that the dragon was seeking to destroy. Who was that child? Jesus. That's right. Jesus was that child that was born of this woman. And we see that in the Bible, the dragon represents Satan. Satan was intent on destroying Jesus from the very onset of his arrival during his first coming. And in Revelation chapter 12, Satan works through pagan Rome to destroy Jesus. Notice it says that the dragon was trying to devour this child, right? So is it, does that mean that Satan was literally there trying to kill Jesus when he was born? No. It's talking that, about how Satan uses another power to do this, doesn't he? He uses which political power to achieve this means of trying to destroy Jesus? Rome, right? Rome, which is this dragon, right? And so we see that is a Roman official, Herod, who passed a decree that all male children be killed. This Roman ruler attempted to do away with Jesus. And later on, it was a Roman governor, Pilate, who sentenced Christ to death and ordered his crucifixion. And of course, later on, a Roman emblem 
that was sealed on Jesus' tomb and Roman soldiers guarded it. In Revelation chapter 13, the dragon, pagan Rome, would give this new power the seat of his government. So the question then is, who did pagan Rome give its power, throne, and great authority to? When you look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, what does it say? It says, he gave who? The authority and its seat and its power. Who did the dragon give that to? Are you with me? Or not? <laughs> who did the dragon give its power and seat and great authority to? The beast. The beast thank you. The beast. All right. We're back on track. Yes? Question number three then. Who is the beast? And there are six identifying characteristics describing this political religious system mentioned in Revelation 13. And so we're going to look at these six characteristics in detail tonight. So that without a doubt... By the time that this session is over, you will know who this beast is and what is trying to promulgate with the mark. So, number one, who is this beast? We see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, this beast receives authority from pagan Rome. This is the first clue. This is the power that received its government or authority from ancient pagan Rome. So let's go to the most learned professors of all Roman history and see if history lines up with Bible prophecy. Professor LeBlanca taught history for many years at the University of Rome, and he made this observation. To the succession of the Caesars, this means after the rule of the Caesars of Rome, uh, came the succession of the pontiffs, in Rome. So in other words, we see that when the Caesars were phased out in the Roman Empire, that office still continued in the place of the office of pontiffs, right? Which is the religious uh, popes, right? And he says, when Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to who? The pontiff, right? Now, what does the Bible just say? What did we just read? It says that the dragon will give him his what? His seat and power and great authority. And so the Roman Empire was falling apart. It was crumbling. The Emperor Constantine recognized that soon his empire will be overthrown by the Germanic invasions from the north. And Europe was being carved up by these invading armies. It was being divided. And Constantine had to flee Rome. And he went to Turkey. And there he established Constantinople as his new headquarters and capital city. And rather than leaving Rome without a visible leader, he gave the seat of his governmental authority to the Pope of Rome. And in fact, look at Stanley's history, page 40, of how this came about. It says, The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. 
and the papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. You know, we see that very clearly that Rome did not die. It just went through a transition and the power was passed on to a religious institution. But the power of the Caesars was continued through them. So the beast is not a person, but it's a religious political system. Tonight we're going to look at the clear teachings of the Bible. The Bible makes the identification of the beast power plain, and history verifies it. My friends, in our lectures, I want to make it very clear that it is not our desire in any way to hurt any individual or group of people. That is not the intent for these seminars. There are many people, many fine people, sincere believers in the Roman church who love Jesus. They are committed Christians, no doubt about that. But prophecy is not talking about individuals, but a hierarchy that abused its power, and history testifies to this. And the beast is not a person. It's a religious system. We are not pointing out individuals here. We're pointing out a system here that has abused its power throughout history. Prophecy foretold it. History confirms it. So I hope that's clear. The beast of Revelation 13 describes a religious political system that grew up out of Rome. And over time, this system would gradually compromise the truth of God's word. Traditions will slip into the Christian church and Protestant communions will accept those traditions. And I will even go for, as far to say that even now, many Protestants today are accepting those traditions without knowing why. And history tells us where they came from. And so, question number four says, how many will give homage to this religious power? We look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, page 1183. And we are now at table number five. If we could have someone read that for us. How many people will give homage to this religious power? Revelation 13, verse 8. Okay, very good. So let's pause right there. That's good. All who dwell on the earth will, what? Worship him. Him meaning? The beast. Right? So all who dwell on the earth. That's, is that going to be a small minority or is that going to be the vast majority? Almost. Vast majority. Right? So we see that this beast. Who is this beast? Our clue number two. Identification number two. It's a worldwide religious system. Right? So the whole world will know about it. The whole world will pay homage to it. Almost. But the majority anyway. The third characteristic, Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. The Bible tells us, as he was given a mouth speaking great things and what? Blasphemies. Right? So it's not about this beast being a great motivational speaker or that he's a champion of Toastmasters. No, it's not talking about that. Right? But he is talking about great things and blasphemies. 
And most of the time when we think of blasphemy, we think of someone openly cursing God. We think of someone denying the existence of God. But question number five says, how does the Bible define blasphemy? Okay, so we want to see what the Bible says. And the Bible defines blasphemy quite differently. In Scripture, blasphemy occurs when an individual declares that he is equal with God or that he has the privileges of God. And so let's take a look in John chapter 10, verse 33. John chapter 10, verse 33. And we're going to go to table 6. Sonia, do you have that? Are you looking for that for us? Okay. Uh, John 10, 33. I don't have the page number there. I'm sorry. Okay. John 10, 33. What was that page number? 1038. Thank you. John 10.33, what is blasphemy according to the Bible? John 10.38. Okay, so why did the Jews want to stone Jesus? Why did they want to stone Jesus? Because he claimed to be what? He claimed to be God. And that, what do they call that? Blasphemy. blasphemy. That's blasphemy. You're claiming to be God? And they picked up stones and they're trying to stone Jesus. But was Jesus God? Yes. yes. He was not a blasphemer because his claim to be equal with God was true, wasn't it? And so did the Roman church make that claim? Has the Roman church ever claimed to hold God's place on earth? Now here are the encyclical letters directly from the papacy of Leo XIII who says, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Wow. That is a profound statement that they're making. The history of the Roman church speaks for itself. Now look at another aspect of blasphemy that the Bible brings out. Mark chapter 2, verse 7. What's another definition for blasphemy? Blasphemy, we noticed already in John chapter 10, verse 33, is claiming to be God. But what is another uh, definition or another item that defines blasphemy? Mark chapter 2, verse 7, page 969. And table number 7. Can have someone read that for us, please? Mark chapter 2, verse 7, page 969. What else does this verse uh, reveal about blasphemy? So these Jewish leaders say that Christ was a blasphemer. Why? Because he claims to do what? Forgive sins, right? Could Jesus forgive sins? Yes. Why could he forgive sins? Because he had the privilege and the prerogatives of God. Yes or no? Yes. But ladies and gentlemen, here is a book 
called Dignity and Duties of the Priests, volume 12, page 2, by Alphonsus Liguori. And each priest read, reads this book to understand his duties. And this is straight from that book in page 2. It says here, God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon. Wow. According as they refuse or give absolution, the sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. So they're saying that whatever we make decisions upon this earth, God subscribes to our decision. Wow. You know, where does that say that in the Bible? You know, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible where someone has the prerogatives of God on earth. Nowhere do we see that. We see that Jesus is our only priest. That's what my Bible tells me. He stands before the throne of God. He is our only Savior. Jesus is our only Redeemer. Revelation is leading us back to Jesus, not to a man-made system of religion filled with human traditions. Back to the Bible, back to Jesus as it should be. And we see that this beast's power claims equality with God, which is blasphemy. And the Bible says that this beast's power speaks blasphemies against God. The fourth characteristic we're going to look at in question number six. What would this power do to God's people? Okay, Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. We're going to take a look here, page 1183. And by the way, like I said before, we're going to be in Revelation 13, so keep your finger at Revelation 13. Don't lose your spot there. But Revelation 13, verse 7 tells us what is the next hint or next identifying characteristic of this beast. What would this power do to God's people? What is this power's relation to God's people? And so we're going to take a look. Revelation 13, verse 7, page 1183, table number 9. Revelation 13, verse 7, page 1183. Okay, so this power would lead a union of church and state and a time period called the Dark Ages. Have you heard of that? You know, Bible-believing Christians would be condemned to death for their beliefs. Does history bear this out? Did church and state unite under Rome and persecute those who did not go along with his teachings? Yes, sadly. And so we see that this beast, another characteristic we just identified, is a persecuting power. You hear about all these things that took place in the Dark Ages, horrendous things. The Inquisition, right? Bartholomew Massacre, all these things that took place where they're actually uh, killing Christians, Bible-believing Christians, because they would not go with the program of this institution. And so... It would be a persecuting power. The, the Bible is very plain. You see, this is the issue that God is dealing with. The issue is true worship. 
And we see that God is leading us to Christ. God is leading us back to his word. He's leading us to exalt Jesus in our own lives in ways that so many have not understood. Question number seven. How long would this beast exercise its power? Revelation 13, verse 5 We read this, it says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. But further on it says, And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now, what is this all about? It's about authority. So you know that some people have said that mathematics is an exact science. Let's look at the mathematical proof of identity about this beast's power. What about 42 months? What is this 42 months all about? It says that it would seek to exercise its authority that was given to him for 42 months. Well, we noticed when we were here in prior uh, seminars, we learned about Bible prophecy, prophetic time. One prophetic day equals a literal prophetic year. Do you remember that? Yes. And we have the biblical evidence for that or, or why we understand that to be in Ezekiel chapter six, uh, 4 verse 6 uh, Numbers chapter 14 verse 34 this is how we interpret uh, uh, time prophecies in the Bible. The Bible tells us that a prophetic day, whenever a prophetic day is mentioned, is actually equating to a literal year. So let's, knowing that let's take a look at how much does 42 months, how much time is 42 months in literal time? 42 months is, is uh, prophetic. You say three and a half years. Okay. Let's take a look. We see 42 months. You know, how many days are in a month? In the Jewish calendar, it is 30 days in a month. So we just take 30 days, multiply that by the number of prophetic months. That leads us to 1,260 prophetic days which is 1,260, what? Literal years. And it does equate to three and a half years. You're right. Very good. He's a mathematician. That's good. (laughs) It's the same time prophecy. Yeah, three and a half years, 42 months is one and the same. You're right. Yes. And so we see that a prophetic day equals a literal year. So the time period mentioned here is 1,260 years. So 42 prophetic months is equal to 1,260 literal years. So the prophecy declares that this power would exist for this span of time. And then it would suffer a deadly wound. The pagan Roman Empire gradually fell apart from A.D. 356 to A.D. 476. After A.D. 476, in exactly A.D. 538, the last of the tribes battling against papal Rome were defeated. And the prophecy of the 1260 years begins in 538 AD when the Roman Emperor Justinian gave the Pope of Rome religious and civil authority. So this is a time where the Pope of Rome had its zenith of power given to him at 538. He was not given just 
religious authority, but he was given both religious and civil authority. That's very important that we realize that. And so we see that it ruled and exercised his authority for 1260 years. And we see that the papacy would dominate Europe for that space of time and then receive a deadly wound. And that deadly wound was brought, brought the papacy to its knees in the year 1798. And what happened in 1798? Who was a great political leader in Europe in 1798? Napoleon. Napoleon Bonaparte. Right? Napoleon looked south. He felt challenged by the Pope of Rome. He sent his general Berthier to Rome to take the Pope captive. And in 1798, it's amazing, it's just like clockwork. 1798, Berthier entered Rome, and exactly as the prophecy predicted, he took the Pope captive, brought him back to France, and the Pope died in captivity in France. And this is the mortal wound that this beast suffered. Question number eight says, what does history tell us about these remarkable events? Here is church history, page 24. This is what brought about this event where they took the Pope captive and put a standstill to the papal office. It says, the murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile in Valence, and the enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. As prophecy accurately predicted, the papacy received this deadly wound when the Pope died in captivity in 1798. So question number nine, what does the Bible say about this mortal wound? Revelation chapter 13 verse three says, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. That's talking about 1798. And his deadly wound was what? Healed, whoa. So it suffers a deadly wound, but over time, it's going to heal itself. It's going to regain its strength and power and eventually its authority. And the Bible says that the beast's power would reign for 1260 years. That's 538 to 1798. If you do the math, you subtract 1798 from 538. That brings you to exactly 1260, which is the exact time prophecy found in Revelation 13. In 1798, it would suffer a deadly wound. The prophecy was fulfilled precisely. And sometime in the future, the deadly wound will be healed. History, even current events, indicate that Rome is once again prominent in world politics. We see that very much to be the case. When you look at the news, whenever they had uh, I, when they, whenever they had peace problems, who would they call to come in to establish peace? They'd call Pope Francis. And I don't know what he did, but he 
he ironed out all the differences between these two people, these two nations, that it seemed like impossible for them to come to a, a consensus. But whenever he came in, he made it happen for some reason. And so, whenever you have trouble, who are you going to call? The Pope for that help, right? In world politics, it's very influential in world politics. Although it's a religio-political system. Right? So we see that this power reigns for 1260 years. And so the Bible goes on to say in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, there's a number to this beast. What is the number of this beast? Revelation 13, verse 18. Let's have table number 10. Read this for us. Revelation 13, verse 18, page 1183. What is the number of this beast? Okay, so we see that the number of the beast is what? Okay, now sometimes we think that 666 is like some number that is like, ooh, if you have that number, that's terrible, <laughs> right? It's like, uh, it's like a bad omen, you know? It's a super, we have a lot of superstition connected to 666, but the Bible clearly tells us what is 666. Is it a cult number? Is it like a, a, a superstitious number? What does it say? It is a number of a man. It's a number of the beast. A number of a man. So, in the Bible, numbers have significance. The number seven always indicates perfection. And the number six, on the other hand, indicates apostasy or rebellion. And we see that one of the official titles of the papacy is in the Latin vicarious philidae or translated vicar of the Son of God. So this title um, is a, a Latin title. Vicar means the Son of God or a vice God on earth. And so this is inscribed upon his, um, what is that called? Mitre. Mitre, right, that he wears, vicarious philidae, very prominent. And that's the title that he ascribes to himself. And the scripture tells us, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, and that is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The number has to be linked to the head of the organization as part of his official title. Are you following? So his official title is Vicarious Philidae. If it's a Roman power, then it would seem that you would need to use Roman numerals to discover its meaning. And you know, Latin, uh, the Latin alphabet is, uh, is where Rome bases its language from. And so their language, every letter in their alphabet has a numerical value. So Roman numerals give you numerical calculations for letters. And when you actually take that title, the papacy's title, Vicarious Philidae, and you line up all those letters and their numerical values for each letter, 
It's very interesting that if you take the word vicarious and add it up, it leads to 112. You take philae, you add that up, and it adds up to 53 in total. Day is 501, right? So like, for example, if you look at vicarious, the letter V, Roman numeral, what's the value of that? Five, right? I is one, and so forth. It's just like Roman numerals, like what we are familiar with today. But if you add these all up, 12, 53, and 50, that adds up exactly to the number of a man. Six, six, six. Another identifying point to help us to pinpoint exactly who this beast power is. And so we see that the number of this beast's name is 666. It's a power that would grow out of Rome. It would first get its authority from pagan Rome, which the papacy did. Secondly, it'd be a worldwide power of worship, which the Roman church is. Third, its leaders would claim equality with God and the ability to forgive sin. The Roman churches and priests, prelates, do exactly that. And fourth, at times, the church would persecute. History records that's exactly what they did. Fifth, it would be a power that would reign for 1,260 years and then receive a deadly wound. Then the wound would be healed. Again, this prophecy has been fulfilled. And sixth, the most exalted title will be 666. So, what will the beast cause all to receive? Now we're getting to the title of our presentation. Now that we know who the beast is, now it'll make sense to know what he is trying to enforce. Okay, what will this beast cause all to receive? Revelation chapter 13, verse 16 and 17. And we're on table number 11. If we could read this, please. Uh, Revelation 13, 16 and 17, page 1183. Okay, so we see that this beast will cause everyone, everyone, irregardless of socioeconomic class, regardless of your background, is going to cause everyone to receive a what? A mark. And where is this mark going to be received? One of two places. Either in the forehead or on the right hand. That's right. Right? And it says that unless you receive this mark, you cannot buy or sell economic sanctions. And so, this leads us to a question. What is this mark of the beast? How do you describe it? And friends, one clear thing that we do know is that whatever the mark of the beast is, it must be the opposite of God's sign. Yes or no? Because it's, it's, we're comparing true worship versus false worship, right? The beast is enforcing false worship, so this should be in opposition to God's true sign of true worship. 
So we're talking about an organization that arises which has a mark or a sign of its authority. And to understand the mark of the beast, we must first understand God's sign, seal, or mark. So does God have a sign or seal or mark himself? The issues we are studying are of tremendous importance. They had to do with the final battle between good and evil, between truth and error on this planet, and we are involved, each and every one of us here tonight. It's a crisis of global proportions. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, and let's see what is the sign or seal or mark that God himself has. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, page 1179, I would like to now have table 12, when we get there, to read that for us. Revelation 7, 2 and 3, page 1179. What is God's sign, seal, or mark? Revelation 7, 2 and 3, page 1179. Okay. So what we see here happening, right, just to give you a context... We see four angels holding back the four winds. This morning, if you missed this morning's presentation, we were talking about the seven last plagues. You missed out if you didn't come to that presentation. But these four angels are holding back the seven last plagues or the, the uh, total unleashing of catastrophe upon planet Earth. And they're still holding it now as we speak. But there's going to come a time where they unleash those four winds and all hell will break loose. And we see that before this could take place, we see that the angel tells the four angels, do not let go of those winds until we have sealed every one of God's people on their foreheads with the seal of God. In other words, there has to be a recognition of who's God, who is God's people before the seven last plagues are unleashed. And so... The, the seal of God goes where? On their foreheads. Notice it's not on their hand. The seal of God only goes on the forehead of his followers, whereas the mark of the beast goes on both the forehead and the hand. What does that mean? Well, we see the mark of the beast can only be received on the forehead or hand, but God's people can only receive it on their forehead. What is the difference? Is this a literal tattoo that is being put on people's head or a little seal that you can see? <gasps> you have the mark of the beast. Is that how it's going to be? Or you have a chip and they'll say, oh, you got the mark of the beast. Is that what it is? Let's let the Bible explain, shall we? We see... The mark of the beast in the forehead indicates that people, it represents, what's in the forehead? The mind. It represents the people who have been deceived, who chooses knowingly to follow the beast's way. They know it's what the beast says. They are in agreement with it. They wholeheartedly accept it, and they go along with it. They receive the mark of the beast in their foreheads because they have knowingly gone along with it and accepted it. 
They've accepted falsehoods rather than truth. The mark of the beast on the hand indicates that they have been forced to do something against their will, even if they don't believe it. Right? When that law is passed, where no one can buy or sell, they're going to say, well, I got to buy, get food for my family. I don't agree with this, but I will do it just so that I could get groceries for my family. And they will capitulate. They will compromise God's law for the sake of their temporal need. Although they may not believe it, they're not with the program, but they say, hey, I got to do it. So they're forced to do it. That's how they receive the mark on their hand. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 tells us that the hand represents works, you see? Your actions. So by your actions, although your mind says, I'm not doing it, but my actions are doing it, you're still an accomplice to going with the beast. You don't intellectually believe it, but you yield it to the pressure. You've been coerced. And that's what it means when you receive it on your hand. God never uses force. That's why nobody gets the seal on their hand. Whosoever will, God says. God's people receive only the seal in their mind. They accept his sign freely. And what does the Bible mean by sign and seal? Because we use that word, we see those words being brought up a lot here in our, in our topic tonight. But take a look at what the Bible says, what a sign and seal is, and that will be very clear. Okay, if we look at Romans chapter 4, verse 11, allowing the Bible to explain to us what a sign or seal is, it tells us in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, page 1088. Revelation 4, verse 11. That's the wrong one. Romans 4.11. Yes, Romans 4.11. Uh, page 10.88. Okay, so we see in the Bible, what is a sign or seal? Where is God's seal found? We're going to take a look at this. And it says here, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness. So notice how the Bible uses the word sign and seal interchangeably. interchangeably. They're both one and the same. Okay, a sign and seal are exactly the same thing. Okay, so we see where is God's seal found then? God's sign, God's seal, one and the same. Where is a seal found? It is found in God's legal document. You guys know what that legal document is? His legal document is none other than the Ten Commandments. What did I say? The Ten Commandments. Look at this. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. It says, Seal the what? Law among my disciples. Did you catch that? Do you see the connection? What is God's seal? What is God's sign? What is God's mark? Right? It's the law. His law is sealed among those who are his true disciples. Those who truly accept and go along with every one of his commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbath. 
We see in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, it uses the same word, seal, sign, interchangeable. It says, moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me. So God's sign of loyalty is a seventh-day Sabbath, which exalts God as creator of heaven and earth. The Sabbath is God's sign. It is God's seal. It is God's mark of authority. And the Sabbath symbolizes the worship of the God who created heaven and earth. It reveals our allegiance to our Creator. And we see that 666 symbolizes man's rebellion in changing God's law, which is his sign, seal, or mark of authority. So let's take a look at a seal in detail. Here's an example of a royal seal. This is a seal of Queen Elizabeth, right? A royal seal contains three characteristics. Number one, the name of the ruling person. Number two, the title of that ruling person and their office. And number three, their territory in which they oversee or reign over. Right? These three things are always in a seal. And that's even true today when we actually look at the United States of America. We have the seal of the President of the United States, do we not? So who's the President of the United States of America? Trump. Whether you like it or not, right? <laughs> and what is his office? He's the President. President of what? Of the United States. Do you see all those components there? His seal is there, right? Does God also have a seal that also contains his name, his title, his territory? These three things that make documents legal, we see he does. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, in the Ten Commandments is where you'll find that. In the Fourth Commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And see if you can find the seal here. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Do you see it? Do you see the seal anywhere? We see, first of all, it says that, what's his name? The Lord. And what is his title? What did the Lord do? What is the Lord, the only thing that the Lord can do? Create, he made. So he's the creator of what? Heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. So very clearly we see God's name. God's title, God's territory, and it's embedded in the Sabbath commandments. And we see, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In the very heart of God's law is God's Sabbath commandment that authenticates the entire Ten Commandments. The very commandment that he tells us to remember because we're living in a time but we need to remember. 
We're living in a time where the beast's power will enforce a mark of his own that goes contradictory to what God's sign is. Remember. I don't think there's an accident when God worded that fourth commandment with that word. And we see when the commandment says, thou shalt not kill, you could say, why not? Who says I shouldn't kill? What do you mean I cannot steal? Thou shalt not steal. Who says that? And we see the Lord. That is his name. He's the maker. He's the creator. That's his title. Heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. That's his domain. So the Sabbath commandment contains God's name, his title, his territory. It seals the law and makes it binding on all. That's the very seal of his authority as the ruler of the universe. And when we disregard that seal, we're disregarding his rulership. Any document that you receive from a king has that seal placed upon it to show the authentication that it is from the king himself. But when we disregard that seal in the last days, friends, we are endangering ourselves to join the camp of the enemy by going along with his mark. And friends, I don't want that for any of us today. I need to tell you the truth because the Bible tells about this. His seal is in his law. His seal is smack dab in the Sabbath commandment. And if you don't recognize it, if you don't see it, where else can you find that seal? Tell me. If you don't believe that that's the seal, tell me where it is then. Let's talk. But there, that is very clear to me. Those three characteristics show his divine authority as the ruler, the rightful ruler, the rightful one to be worshipped. Not a system, not a man-made tradition, but God and God alone. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 20, page 1088, hallow my Sabbath. That means make my Sabbath holy. And they will be a what? A sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Sabbath, my friends, is a sign, God's sign of loyalty or faithfulness to the Creator. And the Sabbath is God's mark. The Sabbath is His sign. The Sabbath is His seal. It's a symbol that we may know that He is our Lord. He is a Creator. We worship Him. His domain is in heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. And the central issue regarding the mark of the beast is worship. There's no doubt about that. The central issues of worship on one hand, true worship on one hand, and false worship on the other. God will have a people, a group of people who will worship Him as Creator and Lord by keeping all His commandments. If the Sabbath is a sign of worshiping the Creator, what is the beast's sign or mark? What is His sign? Question number 10, 12. What does the Church of Rome claim is a sign of its authority? It's only, to, it's only fair for us to let them speak. Let them speak their mind of what is their sign of authority. And check this out. This is not something dug out from a secret chamber somewhere that someone's life was at stake to expose this to people. This is out in the open. You can find this anywhere. You can even find it online, I'm sure. Notice the Catholic record, September 1st, 1923. This is what the Church of Rome says. They say, 
very emphatically, very clearly, not hiding or beating around the bush. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of the Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Wow. That's very clear what their intentions were. They said Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, so we made that change. Not based on us studying the scripture and saying, oh, we found some new truth. It wasn't based on the Bible. It was based upon their authority that they asserted, saying that that's our mark because we had the power and the influence to make that change. It's right there. You know, you can, you can find the, discover these quotations for yourself. It's very clear historical references. We see that God's mark is the Sabbath. The Roman church claims that the mark of its authority is the worship of the first day of the week, Sunday. And here's a statement from the rectory at St. Catherine's Church. This, I pray you guys will listen to this because this just hit me really hard. And if you're sleeping, wake up, please. <laughs> you're going to miss the best part. St. Catherine Catholic Church Sentinel. This is what they said. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The first century. It says, the holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any direct, not, not, any, not from any directions noted in the scriptures. Notice, they said it wasn't based on scripture. We didn't find any basis for what we'd study in the word of God to make this change. It wasn't based on scripture, they said. I, I'm glad that they admit that. Good for them for admitting that. I applaud them for that. It says, but from the church's sense of its own power. People, and get this part, <laughs> people who think that Scripture should be the sole authority. Do you believe that Scripture should be the sole authority of all that we do? Amen. That's why we're here, right? Praise the Lord that you're here. But look at what they say. People who think that the Scripture should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Wow. Coming from a Catholic writing. They say, if you really want to follow the Bible and let that be your sole authority in all things of what you do, then you should be a Seventh-day Adventist because they follow the Bible. And friends, this is, the, this is straight from their writings. You can find this anywhere. They admit that they made that change, not based on scripture, but their own sense of authority. And they say, if you want to follow scripture, follow the people who are following up to the scripture as much as they possibly can, which is the Seventh-day Adventists. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we believe that Bible-believing Christians today ought to keep the Sabbath holy as the Bible teaches. The question may be asked, I want to make this very plain tonight, what about Bible-believing Christians that love Jesus and worship on the first day of the week? Do they have the mark of the beast, Pastor? The answer is no. No one that's keeping Sunday today has the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is in effect when? 
when it becomes legislated. When governments actually make a law that infringe upon our religious liberties, that dictate to us that we should worship on a day other than what the Bible tells us to worship, is when that happens, that is when the mark of the beast is enforced. But that has not happened yet. But prophecy tells us it will happen. And so, here's what the Bible teaches. There are many Christians who love Jesus and do not understand the central issues that we've been talking about in these series. There are faithful Christians. They're committed to their Lord. In their hearts, they want to serve Christ, but they do not fully understand that there is a church system that has changed God's law from Sabbath to Sunday. And they do not understand that the church, this church system, claims the mark of its authority and places tradition above the Bible. Before Jesus returns, he'll make these issues clear to all mankind. And he, that's why these messages and these meetings are so important, because he wants these issues to be clear before the final test hits, before the coming of Christ. Every honest hearted man or woman will have an opportunity to understand. And I want to say, praise the Lord that you are here tonight to hear this message because we see that the final issue of loyalty will center around worship, friends. Many of you are facing a decision tonight. You're facing a decision between truth and tradition. You're facing the same decision that many others have faced in their journey with Jesus Christ. These decisions, these issues are about worship and they have eternal implications and ramifications. The truth was tainted. Error came into the church. There is something called God's mark, God's seal, God's sign, the Sabbath. And God is calling us from the Roman power. God is calling us back to the Bible. He's calling us to take a stand. He wants us to follow His truth. And the truth that is only in Jesus for Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he wants to lead all of us to further truth. But it, he cannot lead us to further truth unless we are willing to make a stand and make a decision on the truth that has been revealed. God loves you. And that's why he is warning us to be prepared for what's to come. In every age, in every age, God has had a people. God has had men and women take a stand. Taking a stand when truth was not popular. Truth is never popular, friends. The majority will say otherwise, and the temptation is for us to join the majority, but instead of going along with what the majority says, we must say, what does the Word of God say? What does the truth of God's word say? I want to follow that rather than what everyone else is doing because Jesus says that broad is the way that leads to the destruction and many are on that way. And he says straight and narrow is the way and few there be that find it. Friends, Jesus is calling you to the straight and narrow path. 
That's what it means when you follow his truth. Following his truth is not going to be convenient. Following his truth is not going to be acceptable in the sight of yourself and others. But nevertheless, Jesus calls us to go that straight and narrow way. He says, will you trust me and follow me? Even though it may seem like it does not make sense. Even when it seems that it goes against your natural thing of what you know. We see that in the days of Noah, in the days of Daniel, all in the days of the apostles, Jesus' apostles, all these people. God has always had a people in every era of time. And He's looking for people tonight. He's looking for people tonight in this time. He's looking for you, brothers and sisters. He's going to see if you will embrace His truth and follow Him all the way till the end of time. So that when He comes, you will stand firmly rooted in His truth and nothing can sway you. Because you know that no matter what the devil throws at you, you know you are standing for the truth. You are grounded in the truth. And God's going to look upon you as His faithful child. And He will take note of your stand for Him. He will. But God is looking for a people in this time. Are you willing to be part of that group that is called His people for such a time as this? In the last days, God invites His people to take a stand. He's asking you tonight to take a stand. If you know what God wants you to do and you hesitate because it's unpopular, how can you influence your family, your friends, to the truth of God's word? If you are so weak and you compromise and you believe it, but, but because they don't, you decide not to. They don't believe it, so why should I? But friends, let that not be you tonight. God is inviting you to take a stand. God is inviting you to take a stand for His truth. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you tonight. And will you say to Jesus right now, I see the issues. Tradition on one side and the Bible on the other. The teaching of men on this side, the teaching of God's word on the other. Christ on his side and the popular religions leaders on the other. It's more than a matter of days. It's a matter of masters. Who will you choose to be your master? I hear the creator of the universe inviting you to take a stand. Are you willing to make that stand for him tonight? Before you make that decision, I want you to pray and ask the Lord to speak to your heart.
as we listen to a song, and then we're going to open the night for some decisions that can be made tonight. So please listen with your heart, the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you as we listen to this song. You should all have a card in your hand. And I'd like to ask that you please write your name on that card. And we're going to go through this card together. We have learned a lot of startling truth tonight. A lot of things that may challenge what we've known what we believe. But I know that everyone here 
we are here because we want to follow God's word. Amen? And nothing is more important than that. To allow God's word to be the truest priority in all our decision making. And so I want to take a look at this card with you together. It says, in the f- number one, under your name, I accept Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. I choose to follow all his teachings as found in the Bible as he empowers me through his grace. I think that's a wonderful thing that God will empower us to do what he asks us to do, don't you? Amen. It's not that you have to do it yourself, but you say, Lord, even if it's hard, Give me your grace. Empower me to step forth and to do what you ask me to do. And he will do it. And if that's what you want, put a check mark on question number, uh, box number one. Number two, I choose not to worship the beast or receive his mark, but rather, to ch- rather choose to receive the seal of God and receive the righteousness of Christ. Friends, it's only one of two camps in the last days. Either we're all in for Christ or we capitulate and we are counted on the ranks among those who are opposed to God. What is it going to be? If it's you saying, I want to choose to receive a seal of God, put a check mark there and say, that is my decision tonight. Number three, I choose to worship Jesus who made heaven and earth by keeping holy the seventh-day Sabbath as a sign of His redemptive power in my life. If that's your decision, put a check mark on number three. Number four, I would like to become a part of a Sabbath-keeping body of believers. You know very clearly, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that the Sabbath has been changed. God didn't change it. But very clearly we saw tonight who did. And you know the truth. Coming straight from the people who made that change. And you say, I want to follow what the Bible says implicitly. Put a check mark on number four. If that is your desire. Number five. I love Jesus. And would like to be baptized or rebaptized soon. You've come to the understanding that God is calling you to make a decision. And maybe you feel that the decision also requires you to commit your life fully to Him. And you want to make that decision for baptism. If that is your desire, would you put a check mark on number five? As we close tonight. I'd like to ask, will your loyalty and love be with the living Christ who gave his love and life for you on the cross? Is that your desire tonight? Is that what you want to affirm before you leave tonight, along with all the decisions you made on this card? If that is your desire, would you raise your hand and say, that is what I want? I want that to happen for me. Praise the Lord. Can I pray with you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
that your word is truth and the truth will set us free. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, first of all, thank you for guiding us into truth tonight through that very same Spirit. But we pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to accompany, accompany us and every individual here in their personal walks of life. We pray if there's conviction in the hearts of any here, that you'll please continue to press that conviction. Make the truth very clear. Make it evident to them that this is definitely coming from your word and your word alone. And may their love for you respond to your truth. Bless us tonight, Lord, till we meet again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for joining us today. And may God bless you. We would like to invite you to come on Monday night at 7 o'clock for our meeting entitled The USA in Bible Prophecy. You do not want to miss this as it talks about how our country, believe it or not, is mentioned in Bible prophecy. And before that, at 6.30 is the baptismal class. Anyone's welcome to join that class. Uh, it's not just for those who are preparing for baptism, but for anyone who's willing to study a little bit more. So you're more than welcome to join us for that. Please uh, leave your decision cards with one of the ushers, and we uh, feel free to fellowship as long as you'd like. And until then, we'll see you on Monday night. God bless you. Have a good night. Praise God. Praise God. Good night. Yes. Pastor.